So this week is Parshas Yisro. And I always look at these three parshios, these three sections of the middle of of Exodus, as really having some of the highlights of the whole book. You know, when you read the book, you always want to find the juiciest part. I feel like right in the middle of Exodus, we have some of the most dramatic, inspiring, intriguing, provoking episodes in the whole Torah. Of course, the Jewish people are enslaved. And it seems like things are just spiraling and getting worse. And there seems to be no hope. And there is this divine intervention that changes everything. And before you know it, there's 10 miraculous plagues. Each one of them is more nature-defined than the next. And culminating, of course, with the death of the firstborn. And an entire nation of millions of people who spent centuries in bondage are suddenly overnight... They're free to go. And they leave, and everyone's so excited, we're out, finally, until they get cornered. And they get cornered, and their bats are against the wall, and they're surrounded by a military that's armed to the teeth. And another great transcendental miracle happens. They are able to walk through the water. And the waves crash down on their enemies, and again, like, wow, what an amazing episode. We see, again, the Almighty's divine intervention, and the Jewish people are, are being pulled out of the iron crucible of Egypt to be God's nation. And those are the past two parshas. And this week's parsha, of course, has the most important and the most dramatic and the most thought-provoking and the most intriguing episode of them all when the Jewish people are encamped at the foot of a mountain and an entire nation of men, women, Children, old people, young people, newcomers, people that have just joined at the Exodus, all of them are quite temporarily catapulted to prophecy. And an entire nation hears God talk and has a national revelation. These are just an amazing series of important episodes that are important to dwell upon. Amid all these stories, there is, I think, a lesson that's so relevant, so practical, and so genius, and so stands the test of time that I think it's important to look at this story and see what we can learn. And I want to really contrast. I want to contrast two different entities. I want to examine, kind of pull out the core distinction that sent one entity towards glory and destiny and an incredible legacy on one hand. On the other hand, I want to look at maybe a more shameful series of episodes by the other entity with the Jewish people. And given everything they saw and given how wowing the miracles that they experienced, you would imagine that they would be committed to the cause, that they would be all on board. I think one of the most common questions that I get is, how is it possible that 40 days after Sinai, if Sinai was all that you shake it out to be rabbi, how is it possible that there's a sin of the golden calf? It's a good question. Like, how is it possible people saw, saw God at Sinai, saw all these miracles, and have the man, everything, how do you do the golden calf? That's a good question. But I think even before the golden calf, I, I was actually counting last week. Last week was part of Bashalach. Jewish people leave. They have the splitting of the sea. And they have that eruption in song 
And the parsha also concludes that the manna comes from heaven and the quail ascends and they're drinking water out of rocks. It's an amazing time to be alive. But I counted how many times did the Jewish people blunder in one parsha? In the parsha Bashal, last week's parsha, how many times did the Jewish people show a lack of faith? So I made a list of six different episodes that I counted. Maybe there's more. I think I actually came up with another one, but it was, wasn't evident in the, in the verses. It was in the commentary. So I left that aside. Despite having all the inspiration in the world that should have compelled them and propelled them and engendered faith that would be impregnable, somehow they were able to make such a series of blunders. So what are the, let's go through them one by one quickly. So the Parsha begins, last week's Parsha begins, Jewish people live in Egypt and they go a circuitous route. They don't go straight. You would think like Egypt and Israel are neighbors today. Doesn't seem to be that far. If you're going to Israel, just head due north, go through the Sinai Desert, Sinai Peninsula, and get to Israel. What's taking so long? And the verse addresses it right at the beginning. They're going to circuit this way. Why? Because they may meet the Philistines. And if they see the Philistines, they'll get cold feet, and they'll turn around and go back to Egypt. We should stop right now. Like, how is it possible? Jewish people spent hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt. And if they see the Philistines, oh, the Philistines, so scary, we have to avoid them. We'll go back to How is it possible the Jewish people would even consider going back to Egypt, being so terrified of the Philistines? Wait a minute. Didn't you see God was on your side? If God saved you from the Egyptians, you don't think he can handle the Philistines? It seems like the verse is indicating that even though the Jewish people witnessed the humbling of Pharaoh in a complete, comprehensive way, they weren't sold. They didn't believe fully that God really had their back and would save them from any dangers. The Philistines show up. Oh, no, we got to turn back and go back home. Go back to Egypt. Go back to safety. Obviously, there's some sort of lack of faith, number one. Number two, they're surrounded by the Egyptians. And what do they tell Moshe? Why did you take us out of the land of Egypt? What were you thinking? We should have stayed there. It's better for us to live there as slaves than to die here in the desert. Again, we see they don't believe in God. They don't believe that God will save them. They still think that the Egyptians are the real power. Uh, number two, they're complaining God doesn't give them water. That actually happens twice in the Parsha. They get to a place called Mara. There's no water. Moshe, you want to kill us? We're all dead. We don't have any water. Again, complaining. They don't realize that God is there and God is testing. This is already after the splitting of the sea. They, 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 it seems like they've seen enough miracles to know that God exists, is real, is present, is palpable, is tangible. That should permeate their perspective, and it doesn't. It's incredible. And again, they complain on Moses and Aaron. They don't have any bread. They start complaining. And the last sixth episode where they displayed a lack of faith is with the story of the manna. Manna, magical bread dropping down from heaven that could, could turn into whatever food you wanted to be. Amazing. Could you imagine? Think about it. Food parachuting down to your door, but not just your door, to the door of every other person out of millions. What an amazing miracle. But there's only one rule. Only one rule you had to follow. Don't go collect it on Shabbos. One rule. And people still went on to collect it on Shabbos. People still couldn't accept the fact God will give you exactly what you need, no more, no less, but he'll give you what you need. Again, we see, despite all the miracles, despite all the inspiration in the world, Somehow, it didn't penetrate. 
So that's the Jewish people. And then this week's parasha, we meet another very colorful figure, and that is Yisro. Now, Yisro, he appears elsewhere in the Torah. He is Moshe's father-in-law. When Moshe escaped Egypt after he killed the Egyptian, he went to a place called Midian, and there he found uh, a bunch of shepherds who were harassing a bunch of girls. And Moshe is not one of those people that came to defending women because of some recent events that happened in Hollywood. He was a defender of women all the way 3,000 years ago, and the women are being harassed, and he stands up for them. And in short order, he ends up marrying one of those women, Zipporah. And he's the son-in-law of this guy, Yisro, Jethro, who is the priest of Midian. And in this week's parsha, he makes an appearance. In fact, the name of the parsha is called Yisro. The name of the parsha that contains the most significant episode in all of human history, the revelation at Sinai, it's named after a priest who was initially a pagan priest who shows up from Midian who has to be the father of Moshe. And there's a whole lengthy narrative. He shows up and they, they greet each other and they have a huge dinner and they celebrate and they're partying. And he, amazing. Everyone's excited. Next day, they wake up and Moshe has a line out the door. And it goes out the door and around, swings around the side, snakes around the neighborhood. Everyone's waiting in line to talk to Moshe. And Moshe has to answer all the questions. And he's there from day, from morning to night, answering questions one after another. And Yisro watches up and is like, wait a minute, this is so inefficient. It doesn't make sense to have the CEO of the company answer every customer service email, right? Maybe he would be the best at it, but still, you have to allocate your resources in an efficient manner. Get underlings, get lieutenants, get a system where the easy questions could be farmed out to the network of rabbis and you'll answer the hard questions. That's indeed what they implement. And this whole story, Yisro comes in, he's the guy from corporate, he wants to institute a cost-saving measure or efficiency measure, and that's the whole story in the run-up to the Ten Commandments. Now, the, the first word, the entrance, the beginning of our introduction to Yisro is that Yisro, remember, he's in Midian. He's far away. And he hears everything that happen, happens to the Jewish people. And he finds out about everything. He discovers what has happened to the Jewish people all the way in Egypt. Remember, the, the news of a nation escaping slavery had made its way all the way to Midian. And Yisro, he, he hears it and says, wait, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to go join. And he leaves his family, leaves his hometown, Leaves his job. Remember, he's the priest in Midian. He's an important guy. He's a member of the, member of the clergy. And he leaves everything and comes to join the Jewish people. And the Jewish sources say that he actually converted. And it's really just interesting. You think about it. Who had a more inspiring encounter? Jewish people, they witnessed with their own eyeballs. And they heard with their own earballs everything that we read in Exodus. They saw their neighbors gagging over the blood. They heard the croaking of the frogs. They witnessed the endless agony of the lice. They saw the hail. They saw the locusts. They saw the darkness. They were there, witnessed the outcry of the death of the firstborn. To them, it wasn't hearsay. Wasn't something you read in a newspaper? Wasn't you counter because someone sent a message from a thousand miles away? They saw it themselves. 
And somehow, they were still able to reject God or to have lack of faith in all these variety of ways afterwards. And Yisro, he encountered miracles, but he didn't see them. They weren't vivid. They weren't there and present there for him to totally embrace. Yet, he was inspired. And he was willing to give up everything. Leave his family, leave his wife, leave his clergy, leave everything, leave his hometown to come join. He was motivated to change his life and to embrace God, despite the fact that the inspiration that he had was on a much lower level than what the Jews had. And yet, he was impacted, and they weren't. So here, I think, is an important contrast. Amid the most dramatic stories in the Torah, we see, on one hand, the Jewish people who witnessed with their own eyes everything, yet repeatedly seem to be making one error after another, one blunder after another. Now, just as a disclaimer, it's important to note, okay, they made blunders. Was this the entire nation? Maybe it was just a few people. Uh, Maybe they didn't make the blunder. It wasn't as bad as it's maybe portrayed. Sure, but the Torah clearly is critiquing their behavior. And on one hand, we see just the possibility of the fact that people could witness all the inspiration of the world and somehow it doesn't seem to penetrate. On the other hand, we see Yisro, who gets a comparatively minor inspiration and changes everything and and is a great hero. So what I want to try to ponder and to dissect the anatomy of how people take inspiration and run with it. How people who have an idea, it could be an idea for Torah, it could be an idea for relationships, it could be an idea for business, it could be anything that could impact their lives, can change them. Anything. Any sort of inspiration. And for some people, they take that and they change their life. And we know people, we know stories of people, the majority of people, they just are set on a trajectory on a slope probably by their parents and their school and their friends and their siblings and their acquaintances and their circumstances. But that kind of puts them on a certain trajectory in life. And most people just go with the flow. They don't question too much. They accept the status quo, so to speak, of their life. And with brief and minor deviations, will follow that same path for the duration. The Jewish people, many of them, they were slaves. And despite all the chaotic changes that they encountered, a lot of them were still had a slave attitude going despite leaving. They weren't impacted by their circumstances or by the miracles they encountered to dramatically change who they were. And then we see Yisro, who made a radical, transformative paradigm shift in who he was and how he identified. He hears something and Changes everything as a result, changes his whole life. So this is a kind of a kind of a microcosm of the two paths that people take in lives. Most people, I think the majority of people follow the path A, which is, okay, I'm not going to question too much. I'm going to kind of stay the course. Whether they do that, most people don't do this consciously. They don't make a decision to say, I'm not going to change anything, but that's just the reality. Most people if you could kind of map out their lives with very slight changes are going to be in a certain frame of mind for most people. 
And then there's the unique people who are willing to question and willing to upend the first principles. Those people, I think if we kind of map those people out, chart those people out, are most likely to change the world. The great innovators are the ones who say, why does it have to be like this? Why can it be something radically better? That that question is indicative of someone who's willing to see the world in a different way and willing to test new waters and willing to embrace new opportunities, even if there may be risk. Think about the risk for Yisro. He was willing to walk away from a cushy job from the only hometown. Well, I guess he lived initially in Egypt. Um, but the hometown, his, 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 his hometown that he had embraced with his family, everything, and he's willing to walk away from that. So what I want to kind of understand is exactly what goes into the mindset of someone willing to make that shift. And I think, again, this is broadly applicable in many different areas of life. I want to suggest a framework for understanding how inspiration works and how it can be translated into action. I think for every inspiration, there has to be some sort of impetus. There has to be some sort of catalyst, something that triggers or could potentially trigger an inspiration for change. That's something that something that awakens within a person that could stir them to maybe make a choice. Someone who lives on an island, unless they come to some sort of intellectual epiphany, they're not likely to change because they're not likely to have circumstances that are going to awaken the potential for change. So that's to be something that's going to kickstart, so to speak, the path that the progression of inspiration leading to change. For example, so let's, let's, let's look at two people on two sides of a hypothetical situation. Everyone knows that smoking is dangerous. It's harmful. And even write it in big letters on the cigarette boxes, smoking kills. Everyone knows that. But does everyone really know that? You have stories where people would go, smokers would go to the uh, physician and the doctor would show them a, like a picture of their lung, x-ray of their lung. And show them, like, this is what a healthy lung of a 45-year-old looks like. And this is what your lung looks like. And he describes how the tobacco and the carcinogens all affect the bronchioles and the dangers inherent. And really lays it out and goes some through some peer-reviewed studies and quotes the Surgeon General. Everything seems to kind of present an argument. This is an opportunity for a smoker to say, okay, I'm quitting to smoke. And it could be a smoker. It could be someone, God forbid, who's addicted to, to other harmful uh, chemicals or narcotics or whatnot. And people could be stirred up to change. And some people, there have been stories where people went, people went to the physician and the doctor says, listen, if you don't quit smoking now, you will die before you're 55. It's just that's what's going to happen. And they walk out and they take the cigarettes and they flush them down the toilet and they never smoke a cigarette in their life. In their life. There, there are those people. And then there's other people who say, what does this guy know? What do you mean? There was my, my great uncle. He smoked until he was 104. And now he didn't even have filters. Three packs, unfiltered, every day. And then someone convinced him to quit. And he right away died. He needed it for his life. And what, what this person is, is doing 
he's deflecting, he's resisting the inspiration. And now the reason why he's doing it is because it's the path of least resistance. He doesn't want to change because he's addicted. And he has to encounter a lot of pain. Change necessitates pain. There's no way to make change without pain. And therefore, we're programmed to avoid pain. One of the most basic, I think it's the most basic human quality is that we embrace pleasure and try to avoid pain. And therefore, change entails pain, and pain is undesirable, then what do you do? You try to find a less undesirable solution. And that solution might be to just deflect what does this doctor know? Look at him. He's not, he's fat himself, right? Or he's, he's not so healthy. What does he know? Look, I saw him eating once French fries. He's going to tell me about being healthy. He should learn about being healthy, right? There's a lot of ways that we could do it. And these are just little tricks that our Yitzhahara, our Yitzhahara evil inclination programs us to do to try to deflect that. So either, and now the fact that he's unhealthy should have no logical bearing on me being unhealthy. But that's just a trick that we play to avoid the pain of having to change. And the critical distinction between the person who's willing to absorb the inspiration and utilize it in a way that's going to inspire change and going to promote and provoke a new individual, a shift in the trajectory, it's whether or not they're willing to say, you know what, this is relevant to me. I will die if I don't quit smoking right away, I have to change. And when someone applies whatever they encounter inwardly, they are on the path towards inspiration leading to change. And they're willing to question assumptions. Once it becomes relevant to the person, they take what they observe without and they apply it inwardly it matters to them, once they make that self-application, then they're on the way to change themselves and changing the world. Yisro, what does he do? He hears a story about what happened a thousand miles away. Now, if the news reached Yisro, you would imagine it reached Yisro's neighbor as well and many other people in Midian and beyond. People heard about this. In fact, you read the story, Amalek. A whole nation hears about it and goes to war with the Jewish people. Obviously, this news traveled. But Yisro is one who says, you know what? Because of this news, I have to do something about it. It's not just I'm absorbing the news and doing nothing. Oh, wow, this is so interesting. Read this sensational story. It's the top of the headlines. Amazing story. Jewish people, 10 miracles played, splitting of the sea. Oh, wow, incredible. For most people, people who don't have the Yisro characteristic, what an incredible story. And they go on to the next section of the newspaper. Yisro, someone says, this incredible story means to me something. It matters to me. How do I process this? Look at this. They Obviously, God is on their side. This is real. And using his determination, desire for truth, He's willing to go through all that pain entailed in making the change. And he says, okay, what do I need to do? I'm going to join. And he's willing to make that dramatic shift in how he's living his life and going to join the Jewish people. 
the Jews, no matter how inspiring this inspiration or the potential for inspiration that people encounter, if they're not willing to say it matters to me, if they're not willing to drive that last mile of self-application, it doesn't matter how grand the miracle, splitting the sea. I once had a student of mine. He was arguing with me. And he says, you know what? I don't believe or I question or I doubt. I'm dubious. I'm skeptical about all the miracles in the Torah. But he gestures out to the bayou. If God splits the bayou, I'll believe. Now, the logic that we could assemble to say that the Jewish people saw the splitting of the sea, well, a nation of millions experienced it. They told it to their children. There's, it's very hard to think about how that could have been made up, how, how that could have been spoofed. How do you get a nation of millions to believe they saw something they didn't see? Or how do you get a nation to believe that someone saw something they didn't see, but only one guy remembers of the account? Like, it's very hard to think of a way, logically, to kickstart such a myth. So logically, the fact that the sea split for the Jews and the fact that the bayou split for you, those are really the same. What this person is really saying is, yes, the sea split, but I'm not willing to allow that to change because that's going to cause such chaos in my life. And this is, it is terrifying, right? If God exists and he is there interfering and inter- intervening in the world, that's terrifying because that automatically amplifies everything that we do. And people are very hesitant to do that because that's going to throw a monkey wrench into the worldview. It's even worse than the smoker. The smoker, okay, maybe smokers will say that it's not worth living if you can't have your cigarettes. Maybe. But once the reality of God becomes palpable, it really is terrifying for someone who didn't grow up with that or someone like like the Jewish people in Egypt. They're resisting. They have the slave attitude and they're idolaters like the Egyptians around them. And the fact that all these miracles seem to show that God is really in control and don't worry, they worry nonetheless. They're not willing to accept it. Now, I'm sure if you were to ask them, do you believe in God, they would say yes. Just like there's a lot of people who do believe in God, but somehow act in a way as if he doesn't He doesn't exist. That That's a reality. That's a cognitive dissonance that seem, seemingly people are willing to live with. These people, if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? Sure. Well, how come you're complaining all these times that we just listed five, six times they're complaining? Uh, because it's not real. Because it's too painful to think about it. it. To make it totally real is very difficult for all of us. And again, that's the distinction. Are you willing to go through the pain of internalizing the lesson or the potential inspiration that you encounter? I always talk about uh, texting while driving. I have never once spoken to an audience and asked if there is anybody here who can say definitively that they've never texted while they drove. I've never had a time where a hand shot up and said, I never did it. I assume that our children, well, I guess our children, they'll have self-driving cars. So they'll be able to text and watch movies while they drive. But if that doesn't happen, in the unlikely event there are no self-driving cars, I'm sure that's going to be baked into the culture in the next generation, no texting while driving. But the studies that I found 
show that the text while driving is about six times more dangerous and could lead to fatal accidents, God forbid, than being inebriated while driving, to be under the influence of alcohol. Drunk driving, oh gosh, the worst thing, right? Somehow, we're willing to tolerate in our behavior texting while driving. Now, if I were to ask anyone who texts or has texted while they drove, do you, do you think it's dangerous or not dangerous to text while you drive? Well, they would say, well, of course it's dangerous. Do you drink and drive? No, never. You got to have a designated driver. Somehow, it doesn't equate. And the answer is, is of course it's dangerous, but I'm fine. It's not going to happen to me. I'm safe. What do I need to worry about? Now, again, they're not necessarily logically processing every step because once you break it out, once you break it down to its components, the argument collapses. But we see in the behavior, again, it's not my problem. Of course, texting is, is, is dangerous. I do it anyhow. How do I have to do it anyhow? Okay, I did not take that lesson to heart. If you don't take that lesson to heart, if you don't internalize what you encounter, you know, everyone texts, we're all still alive. If you don't do that, if you deflect it, you're not going to be inspired, not going to motivate action. The Talmud tells us, essentially a verse uh, in scripture, that it's very good to go to a funeral. It's very good to go visit the Shiva house. It's very good to have encounters with death and tragedy. Now, Rabbi, why would that be a good thing? Isn't death a bad thing? Yes, of course. We don't like when people die and we mourn it. But what it's telling us is, is that there's a very powerful opportunity to be inspired when you realize that life on this planet is finite. And it is a rapidly depreciating and diminishing entity. And there's a shelf life for life on this planet. All of us know that. And even if we can live as long as Mesushelach, as Methuselah, it's still only 969 years. He also died. Everyone. There has not been a person that lived on this planet and didn't die. But when you visualize it and you see a cadaver, and you see someone being put into the ground buried, and you see kids saying Kaddish, you see that, you visualize it, that's an opportunity to be inspired. Because that's say, okay, if you come into contact with the notion that your life here is diminishing, is depreciating, you have a certain amount of time to live and to accomplish whatever is needed to accomplish, and that's it. That will actually empower you, or can potentially empower you, to make the most of your opportunities here. There was a famous speech that Steve Jobs gave in Stanford in, I think it was 2005, he gave the commencement speech. And he, like the highlight of his speech was that the way to make the most of your opportunities in life here is to live every day with the cognition that you're going to die. Because by doing that, you'll actually live a more inspired life. Of course, we've been saying this for thousands of years. The Talmud tells us, Repent one day before you die. So when's that? Which day is the day before you die? You don't know. Because no one knows when they're going to die. We hope we can live to 100, 150. But we don't know. You don't know. And if you if you have the attitude of like the fact that tomorrow you could die. You went to a funeral today and you know the fact like it's real. It's tangible. It's palpable. Then you're going to repent today. How, how would you behave if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on this, on this earth? and Tomorrow night, you're going to be 
having an account. How, what would you do today differently? There's a great story. They asked one of the great rabbis who lived in America. Uh, his name was Rabbi Avinder Miller. They asked him, what would you do if you knew today was your last day? So everyone will say, well, I'd quickly write my will and I'd quickly arrange all my what's or, – or people say I'd go get a huge, huge, huge breakfast and a huge lunch and I'd, and I'd just fresh away or people say I'd go bungee jumping or – he says, what would you do if it was – so he says, okay, well, I'd wake up and he goes through his whole daily schedule at 6.30 and I go down to chakras and then I get home and I have breakfast and I take a nap and then I go learn. And he, he describes exactly – his schedule that day and his schedule every day because he wasn't saying – he wasn't living his life in a way that was suboptimal. He was trying to maximize it. He knew that he could die any day as, as we're trained in the Torah to, to recognize. And he actually lived every day as if it was his last because that's the way you're supposed to live. So again, that's an opportunity to be inspired. You come into contact with the fact that we're here on a fire. This world is temporary. You just recognize that it's an opportunity to be inspired. But you have to do the work yourself. You have to take the lesson to heart. You can't say, oh, yeah, we're temporary. Boom. You have to find a way to navigate through the labyrinthine defenses that you have in your heart. It's not easy to take the inspiration and to needle your way internally to make yourself change. It's not easy. That's the hard work. And that's what Yisro did. And that's why he's a hero. And that's why the Parsha that tells the story of the Ten Commandments, it's called Yisro. Because we can have all the Torah in the world. If you don't take it to heart, if you don't have the lesson of Yisro, what use is it? All the inspiration in the world. First hear the story of Yisro. Yisro is emblematic of the person who says, I'm going to do something about what I learn, about what I encounter. That is the attitude needed to make it. Torah is amazing. God's wisdom and value, incredible. How powerful. If you don't have the Yisro characteristic, what use is it? You could study lots of Torah. You could teach Torah to an android, to a robot. They have computers now that have all the Torah on them. Wow. What an accomplishment. Is that, is that, is that what the Torah is about? No, it's about changing us. We're such a mess. We have a Yetzirah, we got a soul, we got a body, we have all these stuff going on. You know, humans are complicated. And the Torah is there to help us perfect ourselves and achieve the zenith of human accomplishment. That's, that, that's the goal of Torah. To do it, to unlock the potential we have to learn this critical lesson. Now, of course, this is very spiritual. Uh, but I do think it applies in every area of life. Like we mentioned earlier, great innovators, great business people. I always talk about the guys who founded Uber. So it's two Jewish, I think two Jewish, but I think they're both Jewish. A guy named Travis Kalanick. And another guy named Garrett Kemp. Oh. They were in Paris on a snowy night. They tried to get a taxi. And they said, wouldn't it be great if we could just use our phones that are ubiquitous now? It has, after all, a GPS. You could process payments on it. It's not so hard to figure out a way 
to engineer a system where drivers and riders can be connected through the phone. That's the inspiration. And I'm sure there were thousands and thousands of other people that had the same inspiration. Trying to find a cab in New York City, it's late at night, there's no cabs, or the cabs are disgustingly dirty. I'm sure there were a thousand people that had that inspiration. The difference is, is that one guy said, this is going to be my life's mission. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to overcome all the hurdles to actually take action. What's the difference? Again, one of them was inspired and did something. One of them was inspired and did nothing. The difference is, are you willing to take that last step and say, it matters to me? There's a story I heard uh, in 2009. The great Rabbi Noah Weinberg, who was the Rosh Hashiva of Aish, Aisha Torah. Aisha Torah is one of the big yeshivas in Israel. And it has networks of all these Aish uh, organizations all across the world. The founder was a, was a, a rabbi, Noah Weinberg. And uh, he died in 2009. And during the week after he died, all his students came in from America, from all over the world, and they would have a series of eulogies to talk about him. So one of the rabbis, his name is Rabbi Yitz Greenman from New York, he said that he came to Rabbi Weinberg to visit. This is a student. He has headed his own H institution, his own H branch in New York. And Rabbi Weinberg tells him, what are you doing about Sterot? Haven't, haven't seen each other in a while. And this is what that was at the time where Hamas, the terrorist organization that's running Gaza, was sending mortars, missiles from Gaza into a nearby Jewish town called Sterot. So he walks into his teacher, how are you doing? What are you doing about Sterot? You know what I'm doing, Sarot. I, I live in New York. I have an organization. I got a family. Rabbi Weinberg, like, what? What are you doing, Sarot? You understand? There's Jews who are under bombardment of rockets, and you're doing nothing about it. What's wrong with you? He told over the story by the eulogy of the great rabbi. And what this shows is, is that there's some certain people have the attitude of saying, if there's a problem that I encounter, it means something to me. It's, again, taking that last mile and, and internalizing the inspiration, the motivation to, to, to act. Everyone knew. It wasn't like Rabbi Weinberg discovered he went there and he found that they were shooting. It was in the newspapers every day. The difference is that 90% of us, or I don't want to give numbers. I don't know how many. But the majority of people, they say, oh, thank God I don't live in a place that's has rockets, and I need to take my kids in the middle of the night to bring them to a bomb shelter. Otherwise, risk the fact that a bomb may land. And that's, I think, quite natural. We don't want to live under a war zone. But how could we be silent when our Jewish brethren are being bombarded with bombs and just do nothing? And of course, don't attack me. Everyone else is doing it also. There's a lot of excuses we could say. But this, again, it shows a certain attitude. And I think that's a critical attitude that is needed to really change ourselves, change our trajectory in life, change the world. It's not my idea. Again, we see this many, many examples in the Torah and in the Talmud about this. I'll share one with you here. The Talmud tells of 
the Nazir and the Sota. Nazir is someone who accepts upon themselves a vow to not to abstain from wine for a minimum of 30 days. The Sota is the suspected adulteress. Now, if you look in the Torah, you find that these two episodes are juxtaposed. And if you look in the Talmud, you find that these two books in the Talmud are also juxtaposed. Why does the sections dealing with the suspected adulteress, why is it put next to the section dealing with someone who accepts a vow to abstain from wine for 30 days? What do they possibly do with the Torah? Says the Talmud, if you see an instance of infidelity, if you encounter a suspected adulteress, that's an opportunity to be inspired. You have to say, this has to be relevant to me. You see someone else doing infidelity, you say, I'm not drinking wine. We're trained, or we're programmed, we're engineered, we're wired. When we see someone else doing something wrong, or at least it's being suspected, alleged doing, alleged wrongdoing, we say, oh, what immorality. Who raised these people? Such a disgrace. What a horrible person. How embarrassing. That's a natural response. Blame them. Here we're being shown an entirely different angle. You see something bad that someone else did. You have to take a lesson to heart for yourself. You have to say, this could potentially happen to me. I'm going to take steps to avoid the possibility of falling into the same trap that that person did. And therefore, I'm going to accept a vow to not consume wine. Wine leads to frivolity. Frivolity may lead to me making the same blunder that 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 person did as well. Again, you can only learn from any sort of inspiration if you're willing to say, what does it mean to me? If you're not willing to do that, no matter how much inspiration could possibly exist in the world, you won't be impacted. You could see seas splitting and 10 miracles. If you're not willing to say this matters to me, you're not going to change. Or maybe you will change a little bit, but you're not going to fundamentally change. This is the secret of change. Well, this is at least the first step of change. I want to end with one story about uh, a bunch of soldiers they had a post, like a guard post, and they were – it was overnight and they always have one soldier out standing guard and the rest of them were, I guess, taking a nap or sleeping in a tent. And in the middle of the night, the the soldiers who were in the tent, they hear noises and they hear screaming and they walk outside and they see their friend who was out watching. He is being asphyxiated by a boa constrictor. And he's turning blue. And the snake is is tightening itself and choking him to death. And these were totally secular soldiers. But the old Jews know, if you're about to die, you say, Shema Yisrael Hashem HaKadosh Achad. So they tell him, Dadid, they tell him in Hebrew, say Shema Yisrael. And he screams with the last remaining breath, Shema Yisrael Hashem HaKadosh Achad. And a miracle happens. The snake uncoils itself from him and slithers away. And this created a metamorphosis in his life. He was inspired. He said Shema Yisrael and he got saved. He went to investigate. He ended up in a yeshiva. He became religious and he really was moved 
by this experience. His friend became a cab driver and told over this incredible story to the rabbi. And the rabbi tells him, well, you were there. You saw this. So how come you didn't become religious like he did? How come you weren't? He's like, well, it happened to him. It didn't happen to me. But you saw it. You saw you You were privy to the same miracle that he was. Yeah, it happened to him. Not my problem. Again, we have our own IDF. We have our own inspiration, deflection force. And that's, I think, the default. Change is painful and we are motivated to try to disregard the inspiration. There's so many things that can be an inspiration. It could be the smoker. It could be the person who's not willing to reach out and try to form a relationship with someone. It could be so many different things. The person who is willing to go on limb and say, this means something to me, I have to act. I have to allow myself to go through the painful experience of doing something about it. That's someone who's on his or her way to doing great things. Now, just to be clear, even if someone does take action and they try to infuse the inspiration in a, a concrete change, there, there are other headwinds they're going to face, for sure. But I think in this Parsha, we see just a, in a very simple word, Yisro hears and he does something about it. Jewish people see and they don't do anything about it. This, I think, shows the core distinction between someone who is heading towards the path of really trying to live life to the max versus someone that is not willing to do what it takes to disrupt the trajectory that they are on at that given time. You can walk out the door, if you're inspired right now, walk out the door and say, wow, that, that rabbi really could speak. But what really differentiates the people who change the world, the people from the rest of the folk, is whether or not they're willing to say, okay, what does this mean to me? That's the critical question. The Baal Shem Tov, he used to say that the, the world is like a mirror. Everything you see, look and see, okay, what does that mean to me? If we ask those questions, I think we're going to follow the path of Yisro and make the most of Torah.